peek behind the curtain of the Softly Training Lab with the Softly Performance Podcast. The pinnacle of human performance is out there, and we intend to find it. Welcome back to another episode of the Softly Performance Podcast. This is Brooke, the lead registered dietitian nutritionist and all things nutrition nerd here at Softleet headquarters. And I'm really excited about today's episode. We are joined by Zach Bush, MD, triple board certified physician, and his expertise is in internal medicine, endocrinology, and metabolism. And I'm really excited that you have taken the time to join us today. Good morning. Awesome. I appreciate everybody in the audience as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to kick this off and just dive right in because I was watching, you know, your work and your docu-series Farmer's Footprint that I really recommend everyone check out. And I wanted to hear kind of what you're doing and this movement of regenerative agriculture. Awesome. Yeah. My background in medicine um, was paralleled by my basic science research uh, that was ultimately in chemotherapy development around some rare endocrine tumors. And uh, that journey took me ultimately to nutrition, finding out that uh, vitamin A and many other compounds within our food were acting as more potent uh, medicines against cancer than any of the chemotherapies we had on the market. So it was this aha moment of, oh my gosh, what if the food could do all of this? And so um, as that kind of became my science, I left the university setting in 2010 and started in rural Virginia, one of the poorest counties in the in the country, and a food desert started a, a nutrition program for reversing chronic disease to this underserved population that really had poor access not just to food but also healthcare, and uh, was really determined to find a methodology of education and uh, exploration of this world of nutrition that would be scalable to the entire country, seeing that we are in the largest epidemic of chronic disease in history. Uh, most affecting our younger people. And so we're seeing about a 20-year jump in disease uh, penetration from generation to generation, meaning grandma got diabetes at 65, her daughter gets it at 45, her daughter gets it at 25, her child is actually developing polycystic ovarian syndrome and precocious puberty but before puberty is even done. And so we see this you know, rapid acceleration of disease penetrance in our population uh, that is tied to fundamental changes in our food system, it turns out. And that actually took me quite a while to, to sort that out and took some brilliant scientists around me to really tease out these mechanisms. But our laboratory here in Virginia now are some of the leading experts in this, in this understanding of how our chemical ag- agriculture system that developed during the 1990s, how it really undermined the fundamentals of human health and led to this explosion of autism and attention deficit in our children all the way to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and cancer in our adults. And so that's been kind of that slippery slope journey into what is the food, what is the food system, why is the soil important to human health, and how all those links come together. Yeah, I've heard you mention the connection between the microbiome and cancer research, and I was shocked that that was the first time this had occurred to me or I'd heard that, because it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah, you would think that this would be like major headlines every week, Newsweek and beyond, right? And CNN and all the rest, like to find out that the bacteria and fungi that live in and around us are the prevention and ultimately their demise is the cause of cancer is a massive revolution in our understanding. And we should have, you know, almost 12 years ago now, completely redirected the, the hundreds of billions of dollars that we pour into 
cancer and medical research every year around the world, we should have you know, quickly redirected that research away from human cell processes into understanding the ecosystem that supports human life. It's a very humbling thing to realize how dependent human life is on the microorganisms in and around us. It turns out that the food that's on your plate in a day, as much as we argue over nutrition and should you be on a low carb, high carb, low protein, high protein, high fat, low fat diets, you can literally find the opposite opinions with a lot of partial science backing every single one of those positions out there. And it turns out that all of those are missing the point of nutrition and that food on our plate never turns into to fuel and nutrients in our body directly. And so we have to instead have this huge host of bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses interacting with that food in our intestinal environment and ultimately in the cells that metabolize those nutrients into usable functions, not for us, but another part of the microbiome, which is mitochondria. These little organisms that look like bacteria, but have the DNA strands of viruses live inside of our cells. There's three different species that, of mitochondria that live and thrive in human cells. And these guys are responsible for, for taking the food and fuel made by bacteria and fungi in the gut and turn that then finally into food for the human. And so we've got these huge microorganism populations that dwarf the number of human cells in our body. Human cells, we have between 50 and 100 trillion human cells. And that sounds like you know, an enormous number. And of course, that is a massive number. But it's 10 x by just the bacterial, let alone the fungal species, the parasites, and everything else. And so with 10 x you're up in the, in the 1.4 quadrillion uh, microbiome just for the bacteria that are taking care of your body. And then we look to the mitochondria and we find out that's 10x again over the bacteria and you're at 14 quadrillion mitochondria in the human body. Wow. And so these organisms in their massive populations are responsible for nutrient delivery and cell repair. And cell repair is done really by that mitochondrial environment. You may have taken a biology course at some point and in that been told that the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the human cell and they produce all the power that, and energy that's needed for human cell. That is true, but what is you know, massively missed in that message is that the byproducts of that fuel production system become the communication stream inside the cell to do cell repair, stem cell call-in, immune activation, and ultimately program cell suicide to prevent cancer. And so that's all done by mitochondria. Where we're now working, and that was my area of expertise in the cancer world, I was working on nutrient compounds that would turn on cell suicide in mitochondria uh, living inside cancer cells so that we could kill cancer without toxins. And so that expertise got me set up for the massive um, kind of breakthrough that we made at, at my clinic in 2012 studying soil. We found some mo molecules within the soil that looked a lot like the chemotherapeutic pathways that I used to study in the mitochondrial environment. And when I found out that they were made by bacteria and fungi, it closed the loop. This is, this is the link that we had been missing because in 2005 to 2010, a lot of data was coming out as we started to develop the ability to do genomics of the microbiome of the bowel and the stool. We started to realize that uh, the patterns of bacteria in the human gut were predicting what type of cancers those humans would get. So if you were missing these bacteria, you get breast cancer. If you're missing these bacteria, you get colon cancer. And so it's a massive, wow. bizarre new world of correlation between microbiome species and populations, their activities, and your risk for cancer. 
we couldn't figure out how those two were linked because the bacteria and fungi have never had a place in our understanding of the pathophysiology or the science of development of cancer. And when we found these molecules in soil in 2012, it helped me close the, that you know, intellectual loop of, oh my gosh, this is how it's done. The bacteria and fungi make a communication network, this time not inside the cells like the mitochondria, this time outside the cells. And sure enough, that's exactly what we've proved out over the last years is that bacteria and fungi produce a communication network that coordinates cell repair in the extracellular matrix and speaks directly to and provides more information to the mitochondria to do what they should do, which is inside the cell repair. And so we've been able to now coordinate bacteria and fungi with mitochondria to do human cell repair, uh, cancer management and that cellular environment and all of that through that aptos program cell suicide environment. Wow. I feel like this has like ama amazing application. And I'm curious to see where do you think that that's going to go as far as the future of cancer treatment, how we approach it? Um, it's, it typically takes about 20 years. So um, on average, when we have a big scientific breakthrough in laboratories, it takes about 20 years for that to become practiced in the clinical setting. And so that's a, an unfortunate number because we'll lose you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people to cancer in that 20-year gap between you know, recognition of a new world and, and application thereof. I hope that the information technology world is going to accelerate that 20 years and maybe shorten it by five years or so. Um, but, you know, I found those molecules for, for my own scientific exploration in 2012, and eight years later, we don't hear any doctors or scientists talking about this. And so, right. um, you know, the, the microbiome is really, you know, getting traction now, which is hopeful. Uh, it's hard to pick up a women's health journal all the way to, you know, your sports mags, all the way to a physician science peer-reviewed journal without seeing something about the microbiome. And so I think we are reaching a tipping point now with, with awareness of this topic. Um, it is extremely poorly understood and misrepresented in almost every one of those journal articles from the science all the way to the, the pop, pure, pop kind of culture mags. Um, all that's being talked about really is bacteria, and for those bacteria, a very small segment. And so um, we're pretending like we know and, and are depicting this microbiome accurately, but nobody's talking about the fungi, which to give you, again, scale here, we're, we, we think there's about 40,000 species of bacteria that are probably pertinent to the, bacteria, the, the microbiome environment in humans, and that may be you know, missing the mark by quite a lot but there's 5 million species of fungi. And so you go from 40,000 to 5 million species and you get, get to start to wrap your head around how complex this ecosystem really is. Um, the advent of the super, super fast computers coming down the pike with our quantum computing chips is the only hope that I have that we would ever even figure out the complexity of all the interactions between 5 million species of fungi and the human species that would live within them. Uh, and so that's that's exciting to me that we may have the computing power in the next few years to start to really delineate what is protein and genomic swapping look like when you start to take into consideration the 5 million species of fungi. Someday we may even be able to wrap our heads around the virus. Viruses are 10 to the 31 on the planet. And so that's a one with 31 zeros after it. We don't oh have a number gosh. name. And so that number is actually 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe. And so very few people are dealing with numbers on the 10 to the 31 scale. And so you, it's you know not surprising that your doctor's not wrapping his head around how viruses interact with every single human cell every single second 
and it's probably tens of thousands of viruses working and interacting with human cells at that speed um, at any given second. And they're modifying our genomics, they're modifying our behavior within the environment, they're modifying, modifying which genes turn on, which proteins are made from those genes, and the like. And so, um, suffice it to say, we're neophytes in, in even talking about the microbiome, let alone you know, conceptualizing or, or beginning to understand uh, the beauty of that microecosystem and how it impacts and really shepherds human cells into a fetus, into an embryo, into, you know, this, this newborn baby that's toddling through the grass and in the dirt and digging into real soil and eating real fruits and vegetables and becomes this thriving being on the planet, not unlike a tree sapling getting its root system built and, and striving forward and to build this huge, powerful trunk that would support, you know, thousands of pounds of material up in the air, 60 feet, you know, a tree is such a marvelous invention of nature. And I find the same awe of a child that's springing into its strength and springing into its vibrancy through nutrient delivery to these distant cells and coordination of those cells, uh, not only between its own organism, but then coordinating that organism a human being into its communication with the animal species. How does a, how does a human communicate with the bird that's that's flying through the air? How does a human being communicate with the insects that are crawling through the walls of their house? How do, how is all of this interspecies connection happening? Uh, it boggles my mind and gives me goosebumps every time I start to like venture into this territory of intellectual exploration. Just realizing that. Um, I'm a universe in and of myself. I, I am astronomical in scale. Uh, the numbers of atoms within a single you know, cell is in the billions, and then you have billions of cells. And so just like we have billions of, of stars in every galaxy, and then we have billions of galaxies to the universe, we find out that if you do all of that math and you look at the very tiniest thing that's ever been discovered to the, the universe as a whole, it's the largest thing we've ever measured, dead center of Planck's constant down at the smallest thing in the universe at large is human biology. And so we literally split the difference between the tiniest and the largest scales on the planet. And so therefore, if you stare through a telescope out into the universe and stare at a microscope down through the, through your, the tissues of your hand, down into the core of who you are, you have the same scale in both directions there. And you're sitting at this tipping point of the fabric of the universe where it becomes this 0.001% of the universe that's actually solid. And so it's just so compelling that here you are, you showed up right now. Um, I'm fascinated that we're, we're virtually in the same room right now. We're sitting here looking at each other, talking. There's 7 billion other people on the planet right now, and it's just you and I. And so we're looking at this situation, and I'm so intrigued that that happens. You can actually put down universal scale to the point where two human beings are face-to-face -face having an experience. And so uh, each of you listening, I hope that you're starting to get that goosebump moment of, holy crap, like what planet is this guy coming from? And why, isn't, why am I not thinking this way? Many of you are first responders. Many of you are in the military. And uh, my most poignant experiences have been in some of those environments. I was an EMT before I went into medicine. And you know, the first person I resuscitated successfully was a little old lady who a week later was baking me pies to thank, thank me for the continuation of her life. And I thought, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. I need to keep doing this. Um, that EMT experience was on the tail end of my, my big career shift. I was going to be an engineer, went to the Philippines, delivered babies for six months. And, and the first time I saw 
a baby I was in, you know, delivered uh, into my own hands. I was in the back of a, a van speeding through uh, a dark city of Manila, Philippines, on the way to a, an emergency room because this woman was bleeding out and we'd never seen her before. And she showed up at three o'clock in the morning on our doorstep and um, she was bleeding out as soon as, you know, by the time she had come to us. And um, this little preemie baby was born. This woman who was having this birth was uh, neurologically damaged probably from her birth. She, she was nonverbal and kind of uh, very mentally uh, limited in her development. So she didn't, didn't know what was happening to her. Mm-hmm. Somebody dropped her off and just left her on the doorstep and she's having this baby. And this child drops in my hands in the back of this van and it weighs like three and a half pounds and can easily fit in the palm of my hand. And I was suddenly, as you know, just a kid really, with no medical experience at all, completely blown away that life would be so resilient and so coordinated in its mission to live that that little three and a half pound baby against all odds started to breathe in my hands and slowly started to pink up such that by the time we got to the hospital, um, we had this tiny, tiny little cry coming out of this tiny organism that was doomed to, you know, even if it survives a life where uh, father was unknown, mother was severely uh, mentally limited in her capacity to contribute to this child's life, born into the squatter villages of Philippines, no financial or support system or safety net. And you look at the desperation of that humanitarian crisis going on, and the the life seems unperturbed. The Uh, human body is so resilient. It's a powerful experience that you have. And so you guys at that cutting edge of emergency response, and I think... You know, war is an incredible moment to see the tenacity of life that sits within ourselves, within our organisms. Um, I'm a passionate fan of World War One and World War II history. As we saw full-scale mechanized war hit the world for the first time in those wars, we saw in World War One single days where 25,000 men were killed just walking into machine gun fire, knowing that they were going to get mowed down. So what is that psyche? What is that thing? And how did we get from talking about soil to talking about warfare? In the end, we're talking about life itself. And it's fascinating for me to work on farms now with all of these regenerative, you know, these farmers that are moving towards this new technology and science and, and understanding of working with the soil. I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing in the same thing as an infant or the same thing in, in, in man walking in the machine gun fires the fabric of life is so striving for a purpose above itself i'm fascinated by that i'm fascinated that that life sees potential beyond the single cell a single cell wants to participate in a larger organism it strives to stay connected to the larger system and it's only in its complete isolation does it become a cancer cell and so we are at the fabric level made to connect Right now, I think we see a rapid collapse of social structures and uh, economies around the world. Uh, our United States empire is certainly in full speed collapse now, just as the British empire before us, just as you know, going back to the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians, we have collapsed empires again and again. And it's largely been done by the, by the 
constant pursuit of luxury and convenience and consolidation of wealth that in the end is so interesting that wealth has the effect of isolation. Um, I grew up in a in, you know, low-income housing, kind of a poor environment, and just the structure of low-income housing kept us all outside together. Like it, we didn't have air conditioning and we had breezeways that allowed the wind to kind of come through and move some air in the summer times to cool us down. So we all sat around in the breezeways. Nobody had cable, nobody had TVs, you know, like, you know, there was half of us didn't even have television in our, in our homes. I was 12 years old and my family got our first TV and it was probably you know, the first step towards an unproductive life for myself. <laughs> like, you know, how is it that wealth and technology separates ourselves from the world? Like we're all sitting around watching Netflix right now and not being outside like do you remember what it sounds like to just be surrounded by crickets and frogs at night and last night i took a bunch of my friends out right after i fed them dinner i took them out and walked the the country roads around my home so that they could see the fireflies emerging from the grass and the graveyards around my home and to see these like spirit-like glowing animals coming out of the grass was so so beautiful and so inexplicable and we kept saying you know my friends from LA and everything else kept saying like what how come we're not doing this like why isn't this you know considered the highest level of wealth um, and so there's a need in each of our lives to get away from the technology and convenience and start to reconnect to humans around us and we're finding that if we do that on a farm Farmers begin to help each other again. Farmers begin to reconnect together and start to create a new economy around a non-chemical food production system so that the microbiome in the soil can survive long enough to detox the chemicals we've dumped in there so that nutrients can be poured into our plants that would then produce the medicine to the bacteria and the fungi and the plastids and the plants to create the medicine that would then prevent and treat the cancers and the, the attention deficit disorder and the asthma and the autism and the kidney disease and all of these epidemics that are happening around us would literally be treated and prevented by the return of nutrients and nutrition and ultimately the medicine of our foods back into those plants as we reinvigorate the soil and re-empower those plants. Right. You're so well-versed in the history of farming and our, our food system. So how did we get here as far as chemical farming? How, how did this happen? And, and we've kind of allowed it to, I think, I guess, as a consumer base. Yeah, we actually have not only allowed it, we've really accelerated and empowered these chemical companies to take over our agricultural settings. It is a bizarre history. And again, it comes out of war history. In World War II, um, we cranked up the largest demand of petroleum you know, fuel in human history as we created this huge worldwide mechanized warfare, tanks, ships, airplanes, never before had such a scale of industrial demand uh, occurred such that we would uh, ramp up an international petroleum industry. And already at the end of World War I, we see the politics at the end of World War I already going for oil grabs. As at the end of World War I, 1917, they were suddenly, governments were realizing that oil was going to be the, the coal of the 20th century. Coal had been the energy revolution of, of the 19th century. 20th century would become oil. And so there's the politics that shaped the end of World War One, which set the stage for World War II, was actually already around this oil um, kind of uh, grab that was happening worldwide by 
uh, the U.S., Britain, and other countries. And so as we saw World War II wrap up, we did more oil grabs throughout World War II. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union and Germany were really warring over the, the southern uh, oil fields in, in Russia. And so as, as that continued to be the, this increasing focus of wars to win, and now you look at since then um, from, from our you know, wars in Iraq in early 1992 to the Afghanistan slash you know, Iraqi war, that we fought uh, in in uh, the 2000s there, all of this was, again, based around oil. And uh, you know, certainly 9-11 didn't have anything to do with Iraq. The, you know, Afghanistan was housing, uh, you know, the, the proposed, you know, militants and, uh, you know, kind of insurgency that we, we blamed 9-11 on. They had nothing to do with Iraq. And so we, we ended up, you know, kind of rolling Iraq into the story because they had the big oil fields that would ultimately at the end of that war be sparsed out to Exxon Mobil and all these different you know, oil companies. And so I think that if we take a close look, the, the mechanisms of war have largely over the last 120 years been built around the politics and, and, and the war machine itself around uh, the grab for oil. But bizarrely, 19, you know, 1945 sees the situation where as the war machine slows down, we see the, the rise of um, demand for other areas that that petroleum would be used in because there was less planes flying, there was tanks stopped moving. And so we started converting that petroleum not into gasoline for our war machine, but instead into chemicals and fertilizers for our agricultural scene. And so that was uh, an event that would be called the Green Revolution in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, we suddenly got so excited, we thought we had solved world hunger because we were pouring petroleum products and chemical fertilizers and, uh, onto these soils for 20 years. And we were seeing massive explosion of productivity and uh, you know, the dead soils of the poor management that had led to the, the dust bowl of the 1920s and 30s was still present very much. We had dead topsoil all over the country as of the 1940s. And so the Green Revolution became this quick solve, quick fix to poor soil management that had been going on for 100 years previous. And so um, this became known as the Green Revolution. And then we saw the breadbasket of America suddenly become this promised land for feeding the world. And of course, we failed in that. We continue to see worse starvation over the next years worldwide, not less. And so you all remember maybe you know, the Ethiopian crisis that we had in the 1980s of grand, grand starvation. Uh, bring that up to current times. Over the last five years, we've seen the largest famine and the most deadly famine in human history just unfolded in West Africa. And there has been zero headlines. There's been zero benefit concerts. There's been like no attention paid to this massive death of the African communities there as we've seen native tribes disappearing under this massive famine. Uh, going on in West Africa. And so uh, what a devastating, you know, kind of unfolding that we see happening as we start to realize the green revolution while creating green plants never led to a feeding of the world. Mm -hmm. As we started to spray those soils with chemical fertilizer, instead of taking care of the microbiome and, and soil nutrient density and all of that, we created green plants, but they were actually vulnerable. They were sick plants because they didn't have a full gamut of nutrients that would help support their immune system and their growth patterns. And so they would, we were growing stressed plants. 
and stress plants uh, call in insects, it turns out. So everything from an insect down to a virus that would infect a plant are called in by Mother Nature when weakened plants are, are developed so that the genomics of that seed line can be cleaned up. You don't want to pass on sick and weakened crop genomics to downstream. You want nature to, to pair that stuff out. Instead of letting nature you know, identify weak spots within our agricultural system and clear those out, we spray herbicides and pesticides to kill all of those bugs and, and viruses, and we spray antibiotics in the largest quantity. And so we're killing bacteria, fungi, viruses, and parasites, and everything else that lives in the soil in this effort to support the poor health of, of plants that are being grown in dead soil that are being artificially nutrified by petroleum uh, products. And so uh, that's, that's the interesting interplay, I think, between... Uh, this war machine, the rev up of oil in the 20th century, and then the discovery of these new marketplaces, as we then accelerate down that that pathway in the late 1980s and 90s, we start to see pharmaceutical companies owning the chemical ag companies, and so Pharmacia, one of the largest you know, pharmaceutical companies in the United States, would go on to, to own Monsanto, which owned all of the gen genetically modified crop technology that would roll out Roundup Ready crops. 1996, and then by 2006, we've got 95% of our soybeans and more than 85% of our corn genetically modified for Roundup, and we start spraying this chemical Roundup into all of our food by 1996. And so with that advent of that chemical, we see the massive emergence of epidemics of chronic disease. Uh, this started with uh, some, some gentle signs of problem with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity that emerged in the 1990s. We started to see inflammation to bread. Uh, bread has been in our diet for thousands of years. It remains an important staple in Italy, where I was just a couple weeks ago. Nobody's gluten sensitive in these native environments where wheat continues to be uh, you know, uh, produced in its thousand-year-old techniques. We developed gluten sensitivity as we sprayed that wheat and, and food chain with this Roundup chemical. Our lab has now demonstrated the synergy between Roundup and gluten to cause what we call leaky gut or gut permeability, where you get this, this rampant flow of material from your intestinal lining into your immune system, ultimately causing a huge immune reactivity and inflammatory cascade that leads to disorder, disease, and pain and suffering. And so um, started with those first signs of gluten problems. And then by the end of the 1990s, we see the emergence and real acceleration of autoimmune diseases um, affecting young people, especially uh, by 2002, 2003, studies were showing that one in four girls had uh, antibodies to their thyroid gland by age 12. And so just this amazing emergence of our bodies attacking themselves with this increasing confusion of what is outside and what is inside. As you lose the barrier systems to the outside world, uh, you see this incredible encroachment of confusion in the immune system. The human body starts to destroy itself through its reactivity to everything. Seasonal allergies, environmental allergies, food allergies that are now rampant in our children and adults, all of this stemming from this lack of boundary between the outside world and your immune system. So Roundup is causing that directly by erosion of what we call the tight junctions, which are Velcro-like proteins that hold the intestinal lining and the vascular system, your blood-brain barrier, your kidney tubules are all held together and in, in concert make these important boundary events within your body. All of that is eroded by the presence of this Roundup chemical in our food. Unfortunately, Roundup is water-soluble 
which means that it actually doesn't stay put. And so as soon as you spray that on a field, your first irrigation or rainfall runs that, that water-soluble toxin into nearby streams and ultimately rivers and ultimately out into the ocean. As a water-soluble molecule, it also then evaporates with the water molecules as it drifts down the river and you've got an enormous amount of Roundup in the air we breathe. That ultimately ends up in the clouds and we have an enormous amount of Roundup in the clouds that rain on us. And so in the United States and agricultural environments, we can find 75% of the air and 75% of the rainfall contaminated with Roundup. What this means is that we're this, this chemical Roundup has actually never been uh, patented as a, as a weed killer, but it's been patented as an antimicrobial multiple times. So it kills bacteria and fungi and all kinds of parasites. It kills stuff. And by killing stuff in the water systems, the soil systems, the air, even, even the clouds, we're disrupting the natural microbiome that runs the, that entire gamut of the water, water cycle. So we're sterilizing the planet. And as we become sterile as humans, our cancer rates explode, our neurologic dysfunction and neurodegeneration explodes. We get this disconnect from nature as the microbiome disappears. So we're fast on, on, on that pace now. Um, we are worldwide spraying about 5 billion pounds of this chemical Roundup into our soils and water systems. That's terrifying. It's killing, it's killing our, our, our ocean wildlife. It's killing uh, life as we know it on the planet. And it's all for sales. We're literally just doing this to sell more product that has never led to an improvement in food delivery system. It's never reduced hunger on the planet. Uh, we do not feed the world by Roundup Ready crops. Kansas is a great example. The state of Kansas is the most agricultural state within the United States. And 90% of the acreage within Kansas is under agricultural use. Kansas has to import 90% of its food. And one in four children in Kansas goes to sleep hungry every night. Wow. Our farmers are literally starving because they don't produce food anymore. They're producing genetically modified commodities that don't go to end up on somebody's plate. Instead, those products go on, to, that corn and soybean primarily goes into things like ethanol for fuel additives, chemical compounds, high fructose corn syrup, um, monosodium glutamate, all these artificial flavorings that go into your, your processed foods, the chemicals that go on to produce the polyesters and plastics in your, in your clothing, in your cup liners, in your can liners, uh, the chemicals that will go on to be used in shampoos and, and uh, makeup and cosmetics, goes on and on. We are not using all of this farmland to produce food. We're developing chemicals out of that farmland that no human can benefit from. In fact, it all turns into toxins ultimately that, that we are producing. And so uh, the, that 90% of Kansas is going to produce something that ultimately harms human life is, is insane. And yet this is what we've turned this commodities industry into. Our farmers are starving and our farmers are disempowered from growing food. And so this is the system that Farmers Footprint aims to solve. About two years ago, as I started filming this documentary with our team, we realized we can't just shoot a film and tell the story of Roundup and all that. We have to create a new ecosystem, a new economy around farmers so they can break their codependent relationship with banks, the farm bill, crop insurance that's been created by our, our very corrupt legislative system around farming. We need to break the back of that by creating a new economy where we, we connect consumers 
back directly to farmers and cut out all the political and, and economic middlemen that are starving those farmers of, of their livelihood. We need to give the farmers back to the farmers, let them own land, if not own it, then at least let them own uh, their seeds so that they can be creative in what they do next. Right now it's illegal for farmers to own seed. They have to buy seed every year. They can't clean seed. They can't grow their own seed. And so it's just a, a criminal situation that we've developed, a true mafia-like environment where uh, Monsanto and now Bayer are allowed to sue farmers for, for storing seed, doing what farmers have done for thousands of years. I don't know if you've seen, but with Trump's recent legislation, uh, we've had this massive uh, tariff set up against the United States because of our abuse of international markets. And we see farmers going out of business even faster now as, as the commodities prices drop into oblivion. Corn last year sold at minus $60 a bushel, meaning there's a $60 loss for every bushel produced. Despite that ridiculous number, the USDA and the Farm Bill has asked farmers to grow 3 million more acres of corn this year of genetically modifying corn. That's going to fail again. At a loss. Right. that because the banks are only... Uh, their their risk uh, aversion uh, is offset by the farm bill and what we call crop insurance. So if you fail to be able to sell your corn and you're losing $60 a bushel, our taxpayer dollars pour out to these farmers in a welfare system that we call crop insurance. It doesn't function as crop insurance at all. It functions as a welfare system. And so our taxpayer dollars are paying banks to lend money to farmers so don't think your farm bill and tax dollars are, are ending up in farmers' pockets. That's just paying back the banks for the money they borrowed for the seeds and all of the chemical fertilizers that they had to buy as inputs to their land. We can break the back of all of that idiocy, all of that ridiculous economy and limitations, and re-empower the American farmer. I really want to see American farmers elevated to the level of our military personnel. I would like Delta Airlines to announce... First-class passengers, active military, and active farmers, please board now. We need to see our homeland security is goes no further than our farmers. If we don't have food security, we don't have homeland security. We can build all the walls we want, and we'll starve within those walls if we don't start having homeland security take into consideration our food security. And to get food security, we can't have the chemical farmers or the chemical companies owning our farmers we can't have the banks owning our farmers. We need a farmer and independence movement. And I think that we're really unleashing that with Farmers Footprint and our collaboration with, a, with innumerable other orgs that are joining our forces uh, every day more. And so we have you know, the opportunity to put hundreds of millions of, of uh, consumers behind farmers directly and create a global revolution towards food independence again. And this is beyond organic farming. And can you talk a little bit about the difference between we've we kind of touched on chemical farming and then there's organic farming and then regenerative agriculture is is actually way beyond that. So how is even the way organic farmers functioning? What is that doing to the soil and to the the farming and the earth and food? That's an awesome question. I'm glad you bring that up. So when I set out to make the documentary, I, I thought that we were going to set out to tell everybody this is why you're going to buy organic. This is why we're going to grow organic. And it was very disappointing on like day three of our shoot where we're, we're videotaping a soil health academy event with 60 farmers on this piece of land. And we're demonstrating soil health uh, in, in live soil testing with soil from chemical farm, 
organic farms and regenerative farms. And when they drop the, the soil into the soil testing um, column uh, from the organic to find out that it was actually worse than the chemical uh, farming soil was devastating. I, I just was so confused and it, it totally reset my whole algorithm. I couldn't figure out how this was slipping through the, the public information and public knowledge on what we now call organic uh, agriculture. Organic agriculture is like a 30 bullet point list of things you can't do, but it doesn't say anything about what you should do. <laughs> and in that list of 30 things, it never mentions care for the soil. It doesn't actually mention soil health at all. It doesn't mention nutrient density or, or nutrient or health of the plants. And so it's just a list of chemicals you shouldn't spray, basically. And what it fails to mention is care for the soil. And ironically, what's killing our organic land is partly the sprays. They still spray aggressively, just with different compounds that we think are less harmful than, than the Roundups and everything else that are out there in the world. So it may not have atrazine, nicotinamides, and, and Roundup in there, but it does have... Uh, a lot of other, um, you know, mo monocultural chemicals and, and things that are probably damaging the soil. But ironically, it's not so much the spray that's destroying the soil on most organic farms, it's the tilling. Because they're not spraying to kill the weeds, they end up tilling the land more frequently. And when you tear up the land with a plow all the way through and you disc that land up into just bare dirt, you destroy the soil infrastructure again and again and again. You destroy the mycorrhizae and the and the and the fung fungal communities that would then support the bacterial communities that would support the parasite communities that would help support the viral communities, and so we've destroyed that through over plowing, over disking, and so regenerative agriculture is a methodology where you start with don't disrupt the soil, you let it sit, you don't don't uh, till it. Instead, you cover it with a cover crop that has huge biodiversity. We're now encouraging 32 species cover crops, which is much, much different than the last 100 years of cover cropping with uh, monoculture. And so most cover crops historically were, uh, you know, something that you put into your alfalfa feed to bring nitrogen back in uh, into the, the land. And that was your cover crop for a year. And then you plant corn again the next year. Instead, we're bringing in 32 species of everything from clovers to sorrel, sorrels and all of this. And with this huge biodiversity, not only are you returning microbiome, you're returning macro ecosystems. Most of the farms in the entire Midwest have not seen a bird on their property in years. The, the biodiversity of bird life is down to near zero on lots of these tracts of 10,000 acres. Within weeks of going to a, a 32 species cover crop, you see butterflies, moths, birds, bats returning to these ecosystems. And, and these oases occur that suddenly there's no water runoff. The soil can hold the water that actually falls. Dead soil can't hold water. And so we are very drought prone when we have dead soil environments. So our organic and chemical farms are very prone to, to losing their crops with any uh, variability in the water uh, delivery of the, of the, the nature. And so uh, we have this situation where with a very simple process of cover cropping 32 species, and instead of plowing, we do something called seed drilling. To seed drill, you also have the opportunity to, instead of trying to kill the weeds, you use the weeds as protection for the soil and, um, and the soil architecture. So instead of pulling up weeds or killing weeds, we leave the weeds and use a roller crimper that pushes in front of the tractor and it crimps the stems of, the, of your cover crop every six or seven inches. That then kills those and it lays it down on top of the soil to create an armor so that when it rains, it doesn't beat and silt out your soil. 
the average uh, organic and inorganic uh, chemical farms that are growing right now are losing 4,000 pounds of topsoil per acre per year. Wow. Which if you add all of the cost of that up, we're losing 11% of our gross domestic product in just topsoil loss in the United States every year. So we have a huge loss of, of natural resources going on, an expense that we cannot recover without going to this regenerative process. So instead, you cover the land with this roller crimper process, or you can use cattle and, and sheep and goats to become co-creators rather than just protein sources. If you do high-intensity grazing, you get the same results as you would with a roller crimper, plus you get the added benefit of urine, stool, and the microbiome that comes in those uh, nutrient sources from the cattle or the sheep, and that returns life even faster to the soil. And so whether you're doing roller crimper or high-intensity grazing, you're improving land quality very quickly. And then you use a seed drill, which just pops a little hole and drops the seed without disrupting with a plow this whole line that would disrupt the soil architecture itself. So the seed drill comes along. And what you want to then finally do is diversify the economy of the farmer. Right now, the farmer is borrowing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year to get their crop in the ground. Then they have to hope against all hope that nature is kind enough to them to allow them to get that one harvest and hopefully make enough money from that one harvest to pay off the bank loan. Mm -hmm. If they miss by 10% and they default, they lose the farm. In 2016 alone, which is our most recent numbers, we lost 8,000 family farms in, in a single year. We are just disappearing as a farm culture. We are getting more and more dependent on international food supply because we are literally losing farms. And most of those don't return to farmland. Most of that farmland gets turned into residential developments and gets paved over or never returns to some sort of you know uh, agricultural production system. That land that is agriculturally remained isn't even bought up by Americans often. A lot of that land is being bought up by China and other multinational interests that are buying up our most potentially fertile lands. And so talk about last of the homeland security again. We need an economic system where Americans own American soil and we own our seed. Right now, Bayer, a German company, owns 85 to 95% of all of your commodity crops. That is insane. Our Trump administration let that happen. And so, you know, here's Trump acting like we're going to bang our chest and become this isolationist nation superpower. We can't even feed ourselves. And we're, we're, we're selling off our land to international groups. And we sell all of our seed and our genetically modified technologies off to a German company. We are really losing our minds in regard to our political safety. I was really surprised that that happened and at the timing surrounding these lawsuits against Monsanto and glyphosate and cancer. Do you mind kind of explaining a little bit of what's happened there? I guess the first case was in California, and now we're starting to see them. I saw a commercial like you've seen for mesothelioma and asbestos for Roundup the other yeah. day, and I was just yeah, kind of shocked. Class action lawsuits starting to pass. There's over 13,000 lawsuits for cancer-causing uh, events from the use of Roundup, and that's uh, mostly lymphomas and leukemias. Um, <coughs> Excuse me, but we see it across all types of cancer being predisposed. We see this explosion of brain cancer and all kinds of other things too. Uh, lung cancer is a good example. The leading cause of death in lung cancer is no longer smoking. Uh, Non-small cell lung cancer, which is, used to not be a common form of lung cancer, is now the leading cause. Non-small cell lung cancer in non-smokers is the leading cause of lung cancer and is the fastest growing cancer in America right now. So 
um, we're seeing, you know, all kinds of different cancers develop as we do this. Um, we can definitely show at the population scale. Um, if you look at public health patterns of cancer between 1994 and 2007, in that short 13 years, we completely reversed the cancer death map in the United States. For decades and, and a century before that 1994 moment, uh, all of our risk of death was primarily in the Northeast, a little bit in the Northwest. And suddenly in those 13 years, it became the epicenter of cancer became the South. Ohio, down into um, Louisiana and Mississippi, up into Tennessee, Kentucky, that whole zone became the epicenter of cancer. Cancer went up across the whole country, but an explosion happened in that south. That's exactly the territory where we see the highest levels of Roundup. We gather about 80-85% of the Roundup sprayed in the United States into the Mississippi tributaries, and it's consolidated into the last 90 miles of the Mississippi between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And that's where we now call Cancer Alley. That 90 miles is the highest rates of all cancers uh, really out there in the developed world. And so what a devastating thing we've done. And, and to find out now that you know, it's slipped out of our hands to really take, take control of that at the national level, I think, I'm convinced that Monsanto sold when they did because they saw the writing on the wall with these the cancer data stacking up and these lawsuits coming down the pike, they sold themselves for $66 billion to Bayer. $66 billion is an insane amount of money, except when you start to consider this is a company that produces 85 to 90% of the seed for most of the developed and developing world in the world. That's a trillions of dollars operation. And I think Bayer thought they were getting a steal because they got this company for just $66 billion only to find out holy crap, we are in a public sentiment, public awareness nightmare, and we are taking down Bayer ultimately. And I'm very excited. Bayer has lost 40% of its stock value since absorbing Monsanto last year. It's because of the, the drums we are pounding on. Uh, we are bringing awareness to public sentiment. And so if you haven't seen you know, more of our podcasts, if you haven't seen our documentary series, please go to Farmer's Footprint. Um, coming out just in the next few weeks is actually our, our screening slash town hall kind of uh, toolkit. It's an activist toolkit so that you can become an epicenter of change in your community. We've successfully um, you know, seen uh, Roundup being banned from counties world nationwide now. Irvine, California was first. But in the last few months, you've seen Miami County ban Roundup. L.A. County just two weekends ago announced it. And so we're seeing large counties. Houston's working on it right now. Large counties through the United States are starting to ban this chemical Keep in mind when they ban a chemical in Miami, it's not they can't take it off the show, shelves of Lowe's. So homeowners are still pouring pouring these chemicals into our municipal water systems and causing cancer. But what does happen when we outlaw it at the municipal level is it can't be sprayed in public spaces. And so no longer are your parks and rec and your Department of Transportation spray it on all your roads, your school and your park systems. Right now, I believe that we're seeing this explosion in leukemia and lymphoma affecting kids more than adults, partly because those kids are literally rolling around and roundup on their soccer fields and football fields, and they are absorbing that through their skin and through their respiratory tracts as much as they are through the food that they're eating. And so we are seeing this devastating exposure, and there's simple solutions. Not only does our toolkit outline why it needs to be banned as a toxin, it also gives the tools that the parks and rec systems can use, things like 13% vinegars to kill weeds instead of roundup. The vinegar is completely benign to, to the natural systems. And so we have the, the toolkit there for you to really mobilize your school systems, park systems, counties, to start cleaning up your environment. And 
then through Farmers Footprint, you can also start to support this revolution to clean up the farming environment. Our mission is to convert 5 million acres of chemical farms into regenerative farming environments just over the next five years. We need your help to do that. We need you to really let these farmers know loud and clear that there is a demand from the public that's going to help support their transition, that they're going to have an economy on the backside of that transition, mm -hmm. that they can stop relying on the welfare program of the farm bill and the, and the crop insurance and start to sell real product that creates human health and, and let these farmers become what they want. These farmers want to grow nutrient-dense, healthy foods for the planet. Let's let them do that again. They are inventive. They are creative. They do not want to hand out. They are determined to come up with their own solutions. And so your, your dollars are not functioning as a handout at all, that your dollars are going to build the educational systems for those farmers and the technology support and development to, to allow that scalability of that technology to hit our biggest farms. I think what was so hopeful after I watched the first episode of the docu-series was that this change isn't going to take as long as you think to kind of get back that soil health. And that was a real, really, we we're talking about all these heavy things that can be kind of, um, kind of scary, I think. So that was to me an amazing sense of hope. So hopeful. It's so exciting. So earthworms are kind of our harbinger of health or, or the collapse of soil systems. Um, a single application of Roundup has been shown to be able to kill um, pretty much on contact the, the vast majority, if not 100% of the earthworms that live at the surface level of the soil. And over the next six weeks can damage you know 50% of the uh, underground uh, species of earthworms. And so uh, we have this devastating loss of earthworm with a single spraying of Roundup. And you imagine how spraying that field two or three times every year for 16, 20 years in a row, we have the deadest soil on the planet. So this farm that we feature in the first film is up in Minnesota. They've been uh, chemical farming with Roundup and genetically modified crops at the cutting edge of that technology in 1996. And they saw their crop yields diminish radically over the following years. Their soil became infiltrated by massively resistant weeds that were killing their productivity, destroying their machines, all kinds of problems with these massive, almost Christmas tree-sized weeds that were developing on their property. And um, within one year of transitioning away from chemical farming to this regenerative cover cropping and, and soil uh, care process, uh, we see optimal, not just starting to, we see optimal levels of earthworm populations returning, that soil health returning. We see their, them planting seeds that are not pre-treated with all these chemicals, performing at the same, if not better rates uh, than their chemical uh, counterparts on the same piece of land. And so we're just seeing this huge opportunity for uh, recovery of these lands over the next five years. Interestingly, as we repair 5 million acres of uh, farmland and prove that we can 5x to 10x the economy for these farmers. They can literally walk away with five times the income in that period of time, if not 10 times the income. And so with that economic turnaround, we believe that those 5 million acres will actually convert all 130 million acres very quickly because the farmers are going to see a pathway to not only survival, but really thrive for the first time in generations. And so we see an opportunity not to create a, a nonprofit, but to create a true new private, private capital, you know, capitalistic system for healthy food and soils to be grown on the planet again. It can be done in five years. One of the other cool side effects of that is we start to reverse our climate change contributions. The carbon uh, inf 
imprint that we have in the atmosphere right now is about nine gigatons of extra carbon a year. The soil holds 2,500 gigatons of carbon. If we regenerate the soil, it pulls that CO2 right back into the root systems and the fungal and mycelial environments of that soil. We can easily dump that nine gigatons back into the 2,500 gigaton reservoir. And so we just have to reinvigorate the soils. We've killed 97% of the soils on the planet. That's why we have global warming. We start to turn that tide. We create real soil, global warming, and at least our contributions to it go away. That's incredible. I'm so excited about everything that you all are doing. And I'm really, really grateful for you taking the time to kind of talk to us. What, where can people connect with you and learn more about what you're doing? Right. Um, the farmers footprint us is the website for the nonprofit that's invigorating this new economy for farmers, farmers us. My education website that you can go to for a lot more insight on human health and its cross section. If you've got children or yourself struggling with health challenges or you were looking for optimal performance, longevity, and health, a lot more data there at my website, zachbushmd.com, Z-A-C-H-P-U-S-H-M-D.com. You can follow me on Instagram there at zachbushmd as well. Um, you can uh, go to uh, the human health research around uh, the use of soil uh, extracts in the microbiome to support human health at uh, our uh, dietary supplement uh, company, which is Restore, R-E-S-T-O-R-E, Restore, the number four, life.com, restoreforlife.com for information on how to support your family's health and combat the uh, roundup effect in your, your food system and water system that your family's exposed to, as well as your pets. We have a LumaPet uh, line for companion pets to to help support them. Uh, the pet food contains anywhere from 10 to 100 times more Roundup than human food does, and it's devastating the health of our pets. Um, we roll out next year, next month our, our big ag product for cattle and poultry and, and swine uh, to help support the health of these animals in the large feedlot environment, try to reduce the suffering and improve the quality of, of uh, the meat and protein industries there. So further reducing the, the, the methane production actually out of those animals as well to, again, curb greenhouse gas uh, production in the agricultural setting. So uh, all of that, restoreforlife.com. Uh, for the companion pets, you can find Luma Pet on that page as well as Luma, L-U-M-A, pet.com. So uh, health for your family, health for the planet. Let's get it going. Look forward to connecting you guys on the Instagram and everything yeah. else. And I will link all of this up in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I'm really excited to keep following you and Farmer's Footprint. And I'll be on the lookout for that toolkit as well and see, you know, how we can get involved in our communities and, and make a difference. Thank you. A big shout out to all of you listening. I'm a huge, all my gratitude for the first responders and all of you in the military. Uh, my brother's been long in the military and I've gotten an inside look at his journey. And it's been, it's just humbling and uh, really powerful for what you guys do. Uh, with so little appreciation coming back in, in, in an expressed way to you guys. So deep appreciation on my behalf, my children's behalf, and to our country as a whole, to all of you first responders and military out there that are uh, on the front lines of this collapse of human safety and, and health that we see around us. So thank you for your, your courageous leadership. Thank you.